Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Hello and welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. I am your host, Evan Minton, and let me just say that a couple of weeks back, I was very surprised to find out that William Lane Craig responded to my article on Genesis 1, Uh, not not just any article on Genesis 1, but particularly the article in which I responded to his criticisms of the cosmic temple inauguration view of Genesis 1 that is very, very popularly defended in John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, Gen- uh, ancient... Genesis... Uh, what's, what's the subtitle? Gen- the Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate. Um... And that's what Craig was responding to. And I, as I, you know, I I did a very intense study of the early chapters of Genesis over the past year and of uh, science and faith and the relationship between the two. And specifically, I was interested in studying the cosmic temple view, the, the functional origins view of John Walton, hearing his defense of it, but also looking all over the place for criticisms of it, because I know it is a minority view. It's a a minority position among Old Testament scholars. And so, when you adopt a, you know, I found found his arguments pretty compelling. I I think his view is correct. But when you adopt a, a position that is the minority position, you really want to see what the detractors have to say, because... You know, you, you think, well, it's a minority position. Maybe it's a minority position for a reason. Maybe it's maybe it's not true, or maybe the arguments for it aren't very good. You know, let's see what the objectors have to say. And so I looked at what William Lane Craig had to say, what Hugh Ross had to say, what uh, Dominic Stanton had to say. I looked at what Thomas Purifoy had to say. Uh, I looked at all these different criticisms of it, and I'm sure there are more uh, that I haven't gotten to yet, but I just wanted to see, hey, can this view stand up to scrutiny? And time after time, I found, yeah, it, it really can. You know, the objections are just not that good. Um, Thomas Pure, Thomas Purifoy, in his article, the um, the lost world, uh, the Gnostic world of John Walton. I mean, he, he his are his objections were the most pitiful. Um. William Lane Craig and Hugh Ross had the better objections, but even they did not really refute the position. But I was just I was just kind of surprised that William Lane Craig took notice and took two whole podcasts to respond to me. You know, I knew there was a good possibility for that to happen. Kevin Harris, William Lane Craig's co-host, uh, he searches the internet for blog posts and videos to comment on for the for the podcast, especially when it comes to material interacting with Dr. Craig's own work. But, you know, writing a blog post uh, about something that Craig said is no guarantee that he'll find it. And I, I had him, I, the, 
how I found out about it, well, I would have found out about it eventually because I followed the Reasonable Faith podcast. The Reasonable Faith podcast is a very good podcast, very good apologetics podcast. If you do not listen to the, to the Reasonable Faith podcast, you should. You know, uh, other than the Cerebral Faith podcast, the podcasts you should listen to are the Reasonable Faith podcast, hosted by William Lane Craig and Kevin Harris. You should listen to the Naked Bible podcast by Michael Heiser and uh, Trey Strickland. Very, very good. Uh, I mean, this ba- that podcast is basically downright expository preaching. Um, I mean, it's it's the kind of material that you would get in seminary. It's very high quality content. You should also follow the Free Thinking Podcast, hosted by my friend Tim Stratton and Scott Olson, and the Language of God Podcast, that the podcast that Biologo puts out, and the Rethinking Hell Podcast. All of these are great podcasts. I'm going off on a tangent. Anyway, um, I, f- I first found out about it because Kevin Walker, my $20 patron, one of, or one of my two $20 patrons, uh, he, he sent me a message about it. He said, hey, William Lane Craig responded to your blog post. I had two emotions. First was intimidation, because William Lane Craig is known for utterly annihilating his opponents in debates. He is a brilliant debater and a brilliant philosopher. And I was like, oh gosh, he is going to absolutely refute everything. He's just going to just totally show how I'm just so wrong here. <laughs> like, there's no way. I, I want, it's like, oh boy, here we go. But I was also thrilled to have gotten recognition by such a prominent Christian philosopher and apologist like Dr. William Lane Craig. I mean, he's like, he's like the Billy Graham of apologetics. Um, but I don't think that Dr. Craig refuted me, and I think the thesis, the case for the thesis set out in The Lost World of Genesis 1 still stands, and in this podcast episode, I'd like to respond to Dr. Craig's response, to my response, to his critique of the cosmic temple view of Genesis 1. And you're pretty smart if you could follow, <laughs> if you follow that. I'm going to respond to Dr. Craig's response, to my response, to his critique of The Lost World of Genesis 1. Um, and for those who aren't aware of this interpretation, go back to episode 39 of this podcast, uh, and, and I, I defend I, I defend this interpretation. And there's also a blog post on CerebralFaith.net called The Cosmic Temple View of Genesis 1. I'm going to assume a lot, I'm going to assume a lot of background knowledge here. I'm going to assume that you've already been exposed to this interpretation and the arguments for it, and you already know a little bit about it. So if you don't, if you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say the cosmic temple interpretation of Genesis 1, then you need to go back to episode 39, or just read that blog post, either way. Now, first, let let me just make note of Dr. Craig's cordial approach and the way that he handled my criticisms of his arguments against the view. I mean, he handled it with the utmost charity. Um, and I, I've always thought that Craig handled disagreement with his opponents uh, with the utmost charity and respect, but I always thought, you know, maybe my agreement, the fact that I agree with William Lane Craig on almost everything, and 
you know, that I'm, I'm usually on his side in, in debates, you know, maybe that could bias me to see him that way. You know, I want to see him in a good light. So maybe that's, you know, maybe my, uh, my view of him is skewed. But being on the receiving end of his criticism, I can say that he is just as cordial when he's responding uh, to someone. He's just as cordial than he as he is when he's responding to someone we both agree disagree with, like Richard Dawkins or James White. Not once did he make me feel like that he saw me as a buffoon or uninformed. Uh, it was just very, very respectful. And I wish that that were true of all of my detractors. I doubt that if I were being criticized by James White on the dividing line, that I would be able to say the same thing. Uh, I always saw Dr. Craig as respectful to his opponents, but now, being on the receiving end of it, I, I know that, that he, he really is as cordial as I thought he was. And this just makes me admire him even more. If only all Christians could disagree with each other without all of the mudslinging, name-calling, and condescension, uh, I, that, would just, that would just be really awesome. So let's get started. Bill, whenever I see an article that starts off, William Lane Craig is my number one all-time favorite Christian philosopher and apologist. I usually see a big butt <laughs> coming. Evan Minton talks about your criticisms of the cosmic temple view of Genesis. And he goes on to say, he is the one Christian apologist whose views most closely align with my own concerning arguments for God's existence, the methodology of using the minimal facts to establish history of Jesus' resurrection, Molinism, so forth. He says, I scarcely find myself uttering the words, William Lane Craig is wrong about X. Craig has had the biggest influence on the intellectual role of my walk with Christ. And I was, am, and continue to be blessed by his books, podcasts, and Q&A articles. And with all of that said, I think that Craig has missed the mark on interpreting Genesis 1 in one of those areas. And Bill, he's talking about the cosmic temple view of Genesis 1 that John Walton has offered. You've been discussing this on the Defenders class, and so people can get further information on what the Cosmic Temple view is. You want to uh, give us a summation of Cosmic Temple view of Genesis 1? Well, the odd 1? thing about this uh, blog by Evan is that it's not about Walton's Cosmic Temple view of Genesis 1 uh, or two and three. Um, the cosmic temple view is Walton's thesis that God has created the universe as a sort of cosmic temple in which he can rest or dwell or reside. And this is supposed to be on the model of the pagan deities of the ancient Near East, which were thought to reside in temples. And since God cannot be contained in any physical building, the notion here is that Genesis 1 is teaching that the whole world, the whole universe, is God's cosmic temple in which he comes to dwell. And so Walton interprets God's resting on the seventh day, the, the day of the Sabbath later, as God's coming to reside in his cosmic temple. Well, in my view, Kevin, this is reading. I see nothing in Genesis 1 to suggest 
that the universe functions as a cosmic temple in which God comes to dwell, or that his resting on the seventh day is not his ceasing from the works of creation and no longer working, but rather taking up residence somewhere. Now this is a relatively minor interpretive point concerning Genesis 1, and it's not in fact what Evans' blog is about. What his blog is about is the much, much more important issue of Walton's functional interpretation of Genesis 1. It's not about his view of the universe as God's cosmic temple. It's about his view of creation as not involving the material origin of the things that God creates, but rather God simply specifying their function. I'll get to that um, not seeing the temple in Genesis 1 portion later. But Dr. Craig is correct uh, that at least in part one of my article, my it isn't about primarily the temple aspect of Walton's thesis. That is what I dealt with in part two of my response to Craig. Part one dealt with Craig's criticism of seeing God's act of creation as purely assignment of functions rather than both material and functional assignment. It is possible to interpret Genesis 1 as a being about God materially bringing things from material non-existence into material existence and see this as seven days uh, the seven days as being the inauguration of the cosmos as his temple. It's possible to see Genesis 1 as being material origins, but the, the seven days in which God brings material into being, it happens with, th this is part of the inauguration of, of God's temple. You can have material origins and have a temple inauguration. But it's also possible to see Genesis 1 as being only about the functional assignment. Uh, and this, the assignment of the functions over the seven days is part of the inauguration process in which God inaugurates the universe as his cosmic temple and he comes to dwell in his temple, i.e. the universe, at the end of the seven days, on the seventh day. And it's also possible to see Genesis 1 as only functional creation, but not in the context of a cosmic temple. It, so, indeed, Walton's thesis, entire thesis, cannot talk today, Walton's entire thesis seems to be put together from different insights into the text by different scholars that, when put together, results in this entire interpretation set forth in the lost world of Genesis 1. Technically speaking, one could hold to the cosmic temple inauguration view without sacrificing the view that in the process of the inauguration, God physically brings things into being. I call it the cosmic temple inauguration view because that aspect of the thesis is really the main point. But names can be misleading, as we all know. The Big Bang doesn't sound like the beginning of space-time matter and energy. It sounds like an explosion of matter within pre-existing space. The God particle has nothing to do with God, other than the fact that he made it. The God particle is a particle discovered by J. Higgs, and this particle determines the mass of other particles. Likewise, perhaps the cosmic temple inauguration view isn't a sufficient enough name to capture all of the details of Walton's thesis, such as the creation being a, a creation of function and not material. So maybe we should tack on 
functional version and material version at the end instead. So we could say the Cosmic Temple Inauguration View functional version. But given that the Cosmic Temple Inauguration View is already a mouthful, I'm reluctant to do that. Um, and as far as, far as uh, Dr. Craig describing Dr. Walton's view and summarizing it in the opening of this podcast episode, I, I, most of what William Lane Craig said here is accurate. It's correct. He didn't attack a straw man or, or misrepresent it in any way. I might rephrase a sentence here and there in a, in a slightly different way, but overall, this is, this is the view. Now, in that clip that I just played, Dr. Craig said, quote, In my view, Kevin, this is reading between the lines. I see nothing in Genesis 1 to suggest that the universe functions as a cosmic temple in which God comes to dwell, or that his resting on the seventh day is not his ceasing from the works of the sixth day, but simply taking up residence, end quote. Both John Walton and I would argue that God did indeed cease from working on the seventh day. That's what God did on the seventh day. He ceased from working. What we argue is that God's rest is more than simply taking a break from what he was doing the past six days. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just, oh, God stopped creating. It's that God, it's that, it's, Rest is more than just simply the cessation of work. It is that, but it's more than that. And what it is within this ancient Near Eastern mindset is God is taking up residence in the universe as his temple. That's what gods did once their temples were A, physically manufactured, and then B, inaugurated. They, they would... The, the god would come to move in to the temple. The temple would be the god's house. He would take up rest there. Now the now that the act of temple inauguration is completed, now that all things have been created, i.e. assigned their proper functions, God can rest in the temple, the universe, and begin to run things. Now, I am not surprised that Dr. Craig doesn't see anything in Genesis 1 that would denote a temple aspect. He's a modern 21st century Westerner who doesn't think in terms of temples, temple worship, or temple inauguration and all that's associated with it. But if Walton's thesis is correct, and I think it is, then Moses wouldn't have needed to tell his readers, all right, y'all, I want you to understand that these seven days are about a temple inauguration, and that what it means for God to rest on the seventh day means that he's coming to rest in it. You know, he, to make that just as explicit as possible. Moses wouldn't have needed to have been that explicit to his original audience. They would have made that connection immediately. As, as Walton put it in his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, Moses, quote, was communicating to a high-context audience, not a low-context audience, end quote. And that means that these temple aspects, to use uh, terminology frequently used in misreading scripture with Western eyes by Brandon J. O'Brien and E. Randolph Richards, these temple aspects went without saying, they went without saying. While Dr. Craig 
might not see anything that indicates temple imagery in Genesis 1. I would argue that an Israelite 3,000 years ago would. What do you put in a temple after you're done building it? An image of the God. What is its purpose? To bring the the presence of the God down to the earth. And what is the last thing put into the cosmos in Genesis 1? An image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. What is this image's function to rule over creation for God? There's certainly more than a hint of some temple imagery going on here. Evan mentions your objections, Bill, and we will look at each objection he'll, uh, here in his response. But let me ask you quickly, do you and John Walton agree that you should read Genesis in the context of the ancient world, the ancient Near East, how Absolutely. What they thought? So is that what he's trying to do with the, That's the temple? That's what he's claiming to do. Okay. Walton is claiming that when you read Genesis against the backdrop of ancient Near Eastern mythology, particularly Mesopotamian and Egyptian mythology, then this functional creation view emerges. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand how idiosyncratic this view is. Uh, Virtually everyone disagrees with Walton. Bandwagon fallacy. On this. These myths describe how the gods... uh, that's not the port. That's not the portion I wanted to play anyway. Uh, I'm trying to find here the the word study. The his 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 mentions of the usage of just of Baranasa. Idiosyncratic. This view is virtually everyone. Ra does not refer to. So is that what he's trying to do with the? That's the what temp- he's- Evan mentions your one. Walton needs to prove that Genesis is only talking about the creation of functions. That's your objection. Now, here he looks at the use of the word bara in Hebrew to create. And Walton gives about 50 examples of how bara is used in the Old Testament and claims on this basis that bara does not refer to the creation of material objects. Well, I would simply invite our listeners to look at the list, and I think that they will find, as I did, that most of them refer to the creation of material objects. Almost all of them talk about material objects. There are some that don't. For example, that God creates the North and the South. Now, the I, I acknowledged in my response I acknowledged in my response that many of these examples are either ambiguous or might have to refer to material creation. But since there are a dozen examples in which bara cannot mean material creation, that leaves open the possibility that perhaps it's not talking about material creation in Genesis 1. Whether Genesis 1 uses it in a non-material way 
will depend on an examination of the text of Genesis itself, especially in light of ancient Near Eastern understandings of things like light, which was not a material thing in their thinking, the sky was indeed a material thing in their thinking, which puts the material originist in an awkward position, the sun, moon, and stars on day four, not material according to the ancient Near Eastern mindset, and so on. When you look at the text of Genesis through ancient eyes, you could support material creation for only days 3, 5, and 6, which is only half of the entire account. And only then, in light of the presupposition that Genesis 1 is about material origins. Now, in this podcast episode, Craig goes on to say, um, when God has said to create a clean heart or or create north and south, that isn't the specification of a function. Well, no, not explicitly. The verses to which Craig refers never says, I'm creating a clean heart in you for the purpose of serving me better, or God creates north and south for the purpose of such and such. But in these instances, A, it's clear that material creation is not in view because the heart is not a material thing. It's not the blood pump. It's the the seat of emotions. It's the mental capacities. North and south, these are directions, not material things. And yet God is said to create these things. So it's not material creation. B, the while, while the function is not explicitly stated, it is it's implied. If I said I created a new shingle lining for my roof, the function of keeping the rain from entering my house, while not explicitly stated, is implied. There's a purpose, a reason, a function for me putting new shingles on my roof. Likewise, why does God, uh, why does David ask God in Psalm 51:10 to create in him a new heart? It's for the purpose of serving God better. It's so David will no longer be prone to committing grave sins like adultery and murder, the sins which inspired the the writing of Psalm 51. Moreover, Dr. Craig didn't mention one verse I cited uh, in my response to him, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 18. In Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 18, God says, For behold, I create, bara, new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create, bara, Jerusalem, for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Isaiah chapter 65 verses 17 to 18 is clearly referring to functional creation, not material creation, at least in the latter part of the passage. God created Jerusalem for rejoicing and for the gladness of Jerusalem's citizens. We shouldn't take this passage as saying that God poofed buildings and people and animals into being. Nor should we think God is referring to the creation of Jerusalem from pre-existing materials. Jerusalem, as a physical plot of land with buildings, existed long before he created it to be a place of joy for his people. Notice also that function is explicitly stated in this text. I create, bara, Jerusalem, for rejoicing, and her people for gladness. 
So, while Psalm 51.10 and Psalm 89.12 don't explicitly mention the assignment of function, the assignment of function is implied. But, in the Isaiah text that Craig never even brought up, function is explicitly stated. And moreover, Walton's fundamental error here, I think, is um, trying to focus on word studies apart from the use in context. Words uh, can have multiple meanings. The way the word is used in a context will be determined by the context. I agree. I would agree with Dr. Craig, and so would Walton, that you can't derive material creation from the Hebrew word bara. Some theologians do, in the context of Genesis 1, because they reason bara means to create. No material is mentioned in the act of baraing in Genesis 1, so bara must be referring to creation out of nothing. That's the way they reason. Bara means to create, no material is mentioned in the act of baraing in Genesis 1, so therefore, bara in Genesis 1 must be referring to creation out of nothing. And that whole line of reasoning presupposes that Genesis 1 is about material origins to begin with. But if the assignment of functions, if the assignment of functions is what God is doing in Genesis 1, then it's to be expected that no materials would be mentioned in the manufacturing process. That's what we're contesting. When you look at the ways bara is used in the Bible, there are four ways it's used. One, function only. Two, material and function. And three, material only. Oh, and four, uh, ambiguous as to which of the three is in view. And so I would agree with Craig that looking at the word by itself tells us nothing. And we do indeed have to look at the context in which the word is being used. The problem with those who insist on Genesis 1 being an account of material origins is that when you examine the context in which bara is used in that text, you run into problems. The ancients did not understand light to be a physical thing. They did not understand the sun, moon, and stars to be material things. They thought that light was intangible. You couldn't, if you couldn't grab onto it, you couldn't store it in a bottle or a box. It was just, it was, it, they, because it was intangible, it was immaterial. So, you know, sun, moon, and stars, these sources of light, it's, they're, they're immaterial. They're not material objects in ancient Near Eastern thinking. Um... Now, we know that the sun is a gigantic burning ball of gas, 93 million miles from the Earth. We know that the stars are suns like our own, millions of light years from Earth. Uh, in, and they're, they're also burning balls of gas. Uh, the moon is a, a rock reflecting the sun's light orbiting the planet. We, we know all these things. We, we have 400 years of scientific advance on our side. But they didn't. They did not. They did believe the sky to be a material thing. So, I mean, so, are you going, if you insist that Genesis 1 is about material origins, are you going to say that God created a, a solid dome above the earth? I mean, at most, you can say, now, uh, you can say days 3, 5, and 6 
have God creating material things. The land, plants, fish, birds, animals, and people, respectively. Uh, And only then, by presupposing that material origins is the focus of the account. If material origins is the focus of the account, as Craig insists, then according to ancient Near Eastern thinking, you, you have to say God did not create anything on day one. I made a case that Genesis 1-1 should be translated when God created the heavens and the earth rather than in the beginning. So that makes verse 1 a dependent clause, verse 2 a circumstantial clause, and verse 3 the main clause. Craig does dispute this later in the podcast episode, and I'll get to that later. But if I'm right that it, that Genesis 1-1 should be a an independent clause or a subordinate clause, then... God's act of creation does not begin until verse 3. And what does God say in verse 3? Let there be light. The rest of the the rest of that day has God separating light from darkness, which I, as I have argued in previous podcast episodes and in blog posts on the Cerebral Faith website, this is an indication that time is the focus of the day, not light. Light is not the focus of the day, it's the establishment of time. But if you think of light, darkness, and even time the way that an ancient Near Easterner would, nothing material is being created on this day. This is strange if this is supposed to be an account of material origins. And in fact, nothing material is being made on day four, sun, moon, and stars. Because they, the ancients wouldn't have understood those to be material things. So days one and four, you have nothing material being produced. Pretty odd if this is supposed to be an account of material origins. That the verb bara implies or entails material creation. Rather, what will imply material creation is the noun um, of the object that is said to be created. So, when it says that God created, say, the mountains, or the stars, or the heavens and the earth, it's those terms referring to those concrete objects that show its material creation, not the verb. Um, And similarly, when it says God creates north and south, or uh, some other non-physical entity, it's not the verb, it's the referring term that will determine whether material creation is involved. And... In Genesis 1, over and over again, the word is used of material objects, organisms like sea monsters and man and so forth. Um, and so the idea that this is just the specification of functions, I think, is, is quite wrong. So uh, this, is, this argument by Craig seems really bizarre to me. What uh, the clip that I just played, it makes Dr. Craig seems to be saying, if I if I understood him correctly, that if the verb bara refers to a material object, then material creation must be involved. Now, either I misunderstood him or he misunderstood Walton and I. E- either either I misunderstood him or he misunderstood me. 
Probably. I don't know. I mean, that it, from what I heard, I listened to it very carefully. I've played this podcast episode multiple times, and it seems to be saying that if he seems to be saying that if the verb bara refers to a material object like sea monsters or birds, plants, animals, then it then it's it's got to be about material origins, material creations, not merely the specifications of a of a function. And now this seems bizarre because Craig himself cited in this podcast episode, Walton's restaurant analogy. I did not play that clip, uh, that portion of the podcast, but it, he he mentions Walton's restaurant analogy, and Walton and said he said that a restaurant doesn't necessarily exist just because the materials are present. It exists in a in a functional sense, but not a material sense. The the building exists, but it's not functioning as a restaurant. If all you have is the, the physical building there, you don't have a restaurant. Only when kitchenware is brought in, chefs are hired, a license is obtained, chefs are, are cooking food, people are ordering off of menus and so on, then you have an existing restaurant. Then it exists in both a material ontology as well as a functional ontology. It exists in all senses of the word. It exists materially because you have the physical building there, you have the tables and chairs, you have a stove in the kitchen and so on, but it exists in a functional sense. It's, it's functioning as a restaurant. People are eating, chefs are cooking food, the restaurant owner is making money and so on. Um, so, if I say I barad, I created a restaurant, according to Craig's reasoning here, I have to be referring to the material manufacturing of the restaurant. When I say I create, if I say I created a restaurant, it means that I, I made the building, I physically manufactured the building rather than just hired chefs and got a license and had a grand opening and made a website and all, all this stuff. I mean, that that's... I can't say I created a restaurant simply by... Uh, simply by um, repurposing, say, an abandoned warehouse or an abandoned apartment building or something and... and repurposed it as as a restaurant. I can't say that. That would be, according to Craig's reasoning here, that would be an illegitimate usage of the word created a restaurant. But why think such a... Well, you know, to, to, to quote Alvin Plantinga, why think a thing like that? Maybe I do mean that I, I put the building together. That is a way that the, the words, I created a restaurant can be used. But maybe I just simply mean that I hired the chefs, got the, the license, had the ingredients imported, had the, the power turned on, and and so on. And, and, and What is it about a restaurant being physical that precludes creation language referring to just the assignment of a function? For Craig to say, and I, I'm quoting from the manuscript here, 
So when it says that God created the mountains or the stars or the heavens and the earth, it's those terms referring to those concrete objects that show its material creation, not the verb. And in Genesis 1, the verb is used over and over again to refer to material objects, end quote. I just think he's making a fallacious claim here, at least if I understood him correctly, and and I certainly tried to. Like I said, I listened to this podcast episode more than once. And I just don't think when it says, when God said, when it said God created the great light, uh, or God created such and such, why does that have to refer to material creation just because the object it's referring to is material? If I, if a man says, I create a safe environment for my family, well, that could mean that he built the house. He's a, he's a carpenter. He, he got the wood together and, and, and he made the house and he put in the wiring and, you know, he, he, he made the house. Or it could just mean the house already existed, but he works hard to make a living so that he can support his wife and kids and, uh, you know, he's got some guns in the cabinets in case a burglar breaks in and tries to to harm them and, and steal things. And, uh, and they lock the doors and windows at night, and maybe there's an, an intercom in case the children need the parents whose bedroom is on the opposite end of the house. You know, maybe that's what he means when the man says, I create a safe environment for my family. It doesn't, <laughs> but according to William Lane Craig's logic here, because the environment is a physical, concrete object, he can't mean it in a purely functional sense. He has to mean it in a physical sense. And yet, I don't think that Craig, if he met a man who claimed to create a safe environment for his family, that he would assume that, oh boy, this guy knows how to build a house. So, okay, moving on. Craig's next objection is that Walton and I conflate creation out of nothing and creation using pre-existent material. Craig argues that Walton and I conflate creation out of nothing with material creation. And I think Dr. Craig is right that Walton and I may be conflating two different kinds of two different kinds of material creation. And this is a good lesson to take away. Walton and I need to be clearer that we aren't just objecting to material creation out of nothing in the text, but material creation of either kind. For example, whether you understand the creation of the sun on day four to be a, a poofing miracle of God, God just poofed the sun into being, Or, if you understand it as modern science does, uh, uh, the gravitational collapse of gases, the problem is that on ancient Near Eastern thinking, they didn't see the sun as a physical object. So, whether you see material creation as creation ex nihilo, or creation ex materia, which is what would be, according to the modern scientific understanding of how stars form by gravitational collapse of gases, uh, both of these are unable to be derived from the text. That's not the that wouldn't be how the original author and audience would have understood it. They can be read into the text, but they can't be derived from it. They can be eisegeted, but not exegeted. Two, ancient Near Eastern texts assert material creation. When you read the ancient creation myths of Egypt and Mesopotamia, I think it's very evident 
that these ancient myths account for the origin of things like the earth, uh, human beings, cities, uh, agriculture, and so forth. These are described as the creations of the gods. Now, Evans' response is, Dr. Craig is assuming that creation is a material activity, that existence is material, so that when the Babylonian founding of Eridu says that no house had been built, no reed had come forth, and so on, it is saying that these things are materially absent. That's right. It uh, here, Craig simply repeats his presupposition that what it means for the God's temple, the city, and so forth to not exist, it means that they don't materially exist. Again, he simply begs the question in favor of a material origins view of the founding of Eridu, not to mention other creation texts, to say... There was no X, there was no Y, Z did not exist, uh, and so on. Does this mean that they did not exist in a material ontology? Or does it mean that they did not exist within a functional sense? It's pretty evident that the text is saying they did not exist. We, No one can read these texts and miss that. It's saying this did not exist yet, this did not exist yet. No house had been built, no read had for had come forth. But in what sense did they not exist? Dr. Craig presupposes that what it means for these things to not exist in the founding of Eridu is that they didn't yet exist materially, and therefore the account of the creation of everything in the text is describing a material manufacturing process. This is just simply question-begging. Now, my point in mentioning the presence of the sea is that if this were an account of material origin, shouldn't it begin with no material? Is it not the purpose of a material origins account to explain where the material came from, regardless of whether you're speaking of creatio, uh, of creatio ex nihilo or creatia ex materia? Some If this is an account of material origins, some explanation of where the material seas came from ought to be offered. And yet, in the founding of Eridu, and in Genesis 1, no explanation of where the sea came from is given. The creation account begins with the sea already present. Very, This is very peculiar if the origin of, of all of the material things in the universe, if that's the point of the passage, why does it start with material already present? Now, of course, in a material origins account, at some point you will end up at a point of creatio ex nihilo, and perhaps that's where the author could posit the creation of the world of seas out of nothing. But my point remains that a material origins account ought to explain where the material stuff came from rather than beginning with material already present. The fact that material is already present should tip us off that this is not the focus of the author's account. He's not interested in explaining the material origins, regardless of whether it falls into the creatio ex nihilo or the creatio ex materia category. Moreover, that Eridu and Genesis 1 are function-oriented rather than material-oriented 
in either the ex nihilo or ex materia category, is strengthened all the more when you take into account how ancient Near Eastern people saw the sea. They didn't just view it as a large body of water where SpongeBob SquarePants and his buddies lived. In ancient Near Eastern thinking, the sea was a chaotic world, a world of non-order. In Enuma Elish, the symbol of chaos is the goddess Tiamat, who personifies the sea. As Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser wrote, quote, In the ancient world, the original primordial chaotic conditions of creation were often portrayed as a monstrous dragon. This is reflected in stories from ancient Babylon and Israel's closest neighbor, Ugarit, ancient Syria, just north of Israel. In the literature of ancient Ugarit, the god Baal battles Yom, who is portrayed as a chaotic, churning sea, and a terrifying sea dragon named Tanun, or Litanu. These terms are equivalent to the Hebrew words in Psalm chapter 74, verses 13 to 14. You divided the sea, Yom, by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters, Taninim, on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan, End quote. What we can infer from the fact that in ancient Near Eastern thinking, the sea equaled a condition of chaos is that, well, if the material is already present and the state of the world is chaos, that's how ancient Near Easterners would have understood the sea, it's chaos, it's a symbol of non-order, disorder, then what if since creation before anything is created it begins in that state it, it begins in a state of chaos and so then wouldn't creation be an activity of giving functions to that which have no function wouldn't it be the imposition of order in an on a no, the imposition of order on a non-orderly realm we see this same thing in Genesis 1. The sea is already present before God begins creating. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Why mention the sea? Well, an ancient person would have understood the sea as a symbol that chaos was reigning, and that God needed to put everything in order. What all of this implies is that one... The fact that, one, material is already present, see, no explanation is given of where the sea came from in either Genesis 1 or the, the founding of Eridu. And that, two, the material that is present, the sea, is commonly understood in ancient Near Eastern thinking to be a non-functional, chaotic condition. It heavily implies that both the founding of the Babylonian city of Eridu and Genesis 1 are about functional origins, not material origins. It is about how God imposed order on non-order, how he subdued chaos. God defeated Leviathan. He defeated the chaos monster. He brought order. And this whole point about the ancient Near Eastern understanding of the sea and the ancient Near Eastern understanding of 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 how the ocean, the sea, was just this, this symbol of chaos, full of sea monsters and, and chaos. That, you know, the, the sea monsters caused chaos, like Leviathan. 
uh, an ancient mythical creature, not a dinosaur. And I got a blog post coming up on that, but I, I quote from Michael Heiser very, very heavily. So I sent an email to him asking, hey, can I use this? Because, you know, it, it goes over the fair use clause. So once once he gets back to me and gives me the green light, then, I, but you know, if he says, no, you can't use it, then I'll have to rewrite it. But yeah, it's not a dinosaur. It's a mythical creature. The ancients knew it. It was, it was this... And uh, in a Q&A episode of the Naked Bible podcast, Michael Heiser has a whole episode. Uh, well, not a whole episode, but he devotes a good – it's a Q&A episode, and he devotes a good amount of time to explaining what the Leviathan is, how ancient Ugaritic peoples, ancient Israelites, ancient Babylonians uh, – how they would have seen Leviathan and the sea and, and, and virtually every creation myth in the ancient Near East has – a god defeating a god that represents the sea, like Marduk uh, defeating uh, Tiamat. He, he breaks her body in half, and he, he uses half of her body to uh, to make the land and the other to make the sky and to, and to make the world habitable for human beings. He, he brings order to non-order. He defeats chaos. And this is what the author—I'm not saying Genesis 1 is a myth. I, I'm— I'm a born-again Christian, and I believe the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God, but I'm just saying that God is using this—in this, this God, in Genesis 1, he's using that very common understanding that the sea equals chaos. And God is saying, hey, guess what, guys? Marduk's not the one that defeated chaos. Um, neither of these other gods in these ancient creation myths de- defeated chaos. I, the one true God, I'm the one that defeated chaos. I crushed the heads of Leviathan. I killed Tiamat. I'm the I'm the one who did this. Uh, you know, J- John Walton. This is this is one area where I disagree with John Walton. John Walton does not see a polemic in Genesis one. He sees it as uh, ju- he 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 explicitly says in his book that the author is not trying to resp- He's not trying to argue against other views. He's just trying to establish his own. But I I think it's it's both and. I think he's trying to paint Genesis one as being. A, a temple inauguration, God is assigning functions to everything and how they're going to function for humanity and how it's all going to function within his cosmic temple. But at the same time, he's poking, he's he's taking jabs at uh, these other religions around them. Um, so, like, for example, in on day four, he doesn't even name. Have you ever wondered why the text doesn't just say the sun and the moon? It says greater light and lesser light. Have you ever wondered that? Well, some ancient Near Eastern scholars say the reason why Moses did not, or or whoever authored Genesis, there's debate on that, but whoever authored Genesis, the reason he didn't name the sun and moon is because the Hebrews, the Hebrew words for sun and moon were also the names of pagan gods. And so... Uh, he doesn't even want to, the, the author doesn't even want to acknowledge the pagan gods. So he just says greater light and lesser lights, and that's also a reason why he moves them all the way down to day four. You know, we're not even going to talk about them for half of the creation account. We're just going to bring them all the way over there, and and when we do talk about them, we're not even going to name them. That's how worthless these pagan gods are. So yeah, I do think there is a a, a polemic element there, but I also think. 
I don't think that's the primary point of Genesis 1. I think that's just a secondary aspect that the author manages to do in, in telling the story. But anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. I'm sorry about that. Uh, uh, anyway, the whole point about the sea and how it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of chaos, and therefore that indicates that creation is imposing order upon non-order, that's a point that Dr. Craig just skips entirely. He doesn't even acknowledge. I, I put this in my response to Dr. Craig in my, in my first article, and he doesn't even acknowledge it. He just... He just skips over it, and I, and I mean, I know he has like an X amount of time, but this is a this is a very crucial and strong argument in favor of the functional origins view. Now, near the end of of part one, Craig, like like I said, he argues that Genesis one he, that Genesis one one does not have to be a subordinate clause or an independent clause. Um, let me, let me play that part of the podcast for you. Well, one more quick thing, Bill. Uh, I've heard several young scholars, and uh, Evan does as well, talk about that Genesis 1 should be interpreted differently than what we have traditionally interpreted. They think that it needs to say when God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, darkness over the surface of the deep. Didn't think that'll ever happen because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is the way that most translators translate it. But have you heard that, that it should be... Oh, when... this is commonly discussed, Kevin. Okay. Evan says we have good textual reasons to believe that Genesis 1-1, which you remember says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is not the beginning of matter, energy, space, and time, Rather, since Genesis 1-1 lacks the definite article, it should be translated when God created the heavens and the earth. This is a very poor argument. The, the word beginning, in the beginning, it doesn't need to have a definite article in order to have or represent an absolute beginning. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, you have similar construction. So the lack of a definite article is insignificant here. And Evan doesn't interact with, and perhaps is unaware of, the lecture I gave in Defender's class where I explain on the basis of Klaus Vestemann's magisterial commentary on Genesis 1 why Genesis 1-1 is best taken to be a main clause and not a subordinate clause. And as my colleague Paul Copan shows in our book, Creation Out of Nothing, the majority of scholars today take Genesis 1-1 to be a main clause, it is not a subordinate clause. Um, it is appended or prefixed to the creation story by the author of Genesis as a way of declaring God's absolute transcendence and creation of the material order. So, um, I reached out to Inspiring Philosophy and asked him about this. Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy, and I'm going to have him next week on this podcast to offer his thoughts. He asked he asked me if uh, if he could come on and offer his thoughts, and I said, yeah, you know, because he he also affirms uh, this view of of John Walton, uh, the Cosmic Temple Functional Origins view, and I sent an email to him. I said, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Uh, 
What do you think about this argument of Craig's? And this is what he responded. Quote, yeah, he just seems to appeal to authority, but gives no indication as to why it ought to be the main clause, other than that other scholars say so. As I said in my video on Genesis 1, creation accounts do not open this way, but always open with a dependent clause. Anuma Elish, Atrahasis, Carfor... Then Robert Holmstead notes the grammatic structure of Genesis 1-1 implies a dependent clause. Heiser notes that most Jewish scholars have always understood Genesis 1-1 as a dependent clause. The evidence is not in Craig's favor, and he ignores the data. End quote. So that's the end of part one. In, I will now move on to part two of Craig's response. And it looks like this is going to be a long podcast episode. I'm not going to break it up into two because Jones is supposed to come on next week. So it may be an hour it may be an hour and 30 minutes, but hopefully you don't mind. Reasonable faith with Dr. William Lane Craig, and this is part 2 in a series where we're looking at Evan Minton's concerns with Dr. Craig's views of Dr. John Walton. Bill, you've been addressing this at length in your Defenders class, so we encourage listeners to go to reasonablefaith.org and check out your series on the creation of life and biological diversity. And let me quickly say how much we appreciate Evan Mitten. Thank God for young men like him who defend the faith with accuracy and charity online, in debates, in their writings, and in videos. Check out his work at cerebralfaith.net. That's CerebralFaith.net. Evan definitely uses the brains that God gave him. So here's your next objection, Bill, that Evan lists. How could things exist for eons without functioning? Walton's view, you'll remember, is that Genesis 1 does not describe God's bringing into existence these various objects and organisms over the course of the six-day creation week. Rather, he thinks, it is merely the specification of certain functions for the objects and organisms that have been there for an indeterminate amount of time that already exist. And what I argue is that this view of Genesis 1 is enormously implausible because it would require us to take as literally false all of the statements about the primordial darkness, uh, the primeval ocean, the emergence of dry land from the ocean, the earth's bringing forth vegetation and fruit trees, the waters bringing forth sea creatures, the earth's bringing forth animals, God's making man. Now, Evan says, Craig's just begging the question here in favor of material creation. Uh, if the text meant to say that days two, three, and five are about the material creation of these entities, and of course the um, functional interpretation would contradict the text, but that's the very issue being debated. Well, I, I don't think I'm begging the question here. What I said is true, is that it would require us to regard all of those statements as literally false, right? And on the functional view, it is literally false that the earth brought forth this vegetation that the waters drained away and the dry land emerged that God 
put the sun and the moon and the stars and so forth in the sky. These are all literally false statements. They have to be reinterpreted in a sort of functional way, and it seems to me that that is enormously implausible. So I'm not begging the question. I'm simply saying that this is not the way the text reads. First off, first off, why does he say that the functional view renders the statements in Genesis 1 as literally false? Literally by whose definition? And literally according to what kind of ontology? I think the statements, when understood in its ancient Near Eastern context, are literally true. When Genesis 1.11 says, quote, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. End quote. Is the text saying that God is creating the very first land plants for the very first time in a material ontology? I agree that literal tree growth is being envisioned here. God is decreeing that trees would literally grow forth from the ground and sprouts all, sprout all kinds of different fruit. But Craig is presupposing that God is materially creating the very first fruit-bearing trees, and whereas there were no material, there were no trees materially present prior to this decree. And I'm saying that this just begs the question in favor of the material origins view. If Walton's view is correct, then God would not be creating the very first fruit trees and plants to ever exist on the planet in a material sense. He would instead be decreeing that the purpose of the land is to sprout vegetation, and the purpose of the vegetation is to provide food. Let's look at the text. Quote, Then God said, let the land produce vegetation. I hereby decree that that could that could on that could be said. I hereby decree that the purpose of the land is to produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. I.e., I hereby decree that the purpose of seed-bearing plants and trees is to produce food according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, i.e., the aforementioned land and plants are carrying out the functions as God decreed. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. It is literally true that God designated the functions of vegetation-producing to the land and fruit production to the vegetation. There is nothing esoteric about this reading of the text. Of course, as I have argued in my prior writings on this view of Genesis and in my prior podcasts uh, on this topic, whether day three is to be understood as the material creation of the first land plants or the specification of the functions that would have to be decided by looking at the context of this day with the rest of Genesis 1, with how bara and asa can be used, and with how ancient Near Easterners understood ontology and whether they would be concerned with explaining material origins, and so on. And I argue that when you look at Genesis 1 through ancient Near Eastern lenses, 
when you understand that the cognitive environment was that of a primarily functional ontology and so on, you do have a good case for reading day three in the way that I have rendered it. What about the sun, moon, and stars on day four? Now, notice how Dr. Craig chooses his words. He says in the podcast, and I quote, it would require us to take as literally false the statements that God put the sun, moon, and stars in the sky, end quote. Emphasis mine. God, it would require us to take as literally false the statements that God put the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. Well, why think that the text is saying that God put the sun, moon, and, the sun, moon, and stars in the sky in this passage? The only reason I can see is if one is presupposing that Genesis 1 is all about the material manufacturing of the things it describes. Let's look at the text. And God said, let there be lights in the... I'm quoting here. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. End quote. That's Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 19, New International Version. There is no explicit statement in this text that God put the sun, moon, and stars in the sky in a process of material manufacturing, whether ex nihilo or ex materia. There is, however, explicit statements that God was assigning functions to the sun, moon, and stars. The only way to say that this text is saying God put the sun, moon, and stars in the sky, as Craig says, is if you presuppose that the statement God made, in Hebrew, asa, the two great lights, it means that God materially manufactured the two great lights. But what reason is there to think that this is how Asa ought to be interpreted in this passage? Craig doesn't offer any. The function of the heavenly bodies is clearly stated, as even Craig admits. And God said, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Genesis 1.14 The purpose of the sun, moon, and, t- the sun, moon, and stars are to mark time, seasons, days, and years. Time is what God established on day one of creation. Day day four, what God installs are the functionaries that serve out the function established on day one. Let's go look at day one. Quote, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, 
God saw that it was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, New International Version. In Genesis 1, God's first creative act is, let there be light. Genesis 1, 3. As I've already said, this cannot be interpreted as an act of material creation, if for no other reason than the fact that ancients did not consider light to be a material sort of thing. They had no knowledge of photons, waves, particles, any hydrogen and helium. Uh, they, had, they had no idea of, of any of this stuff. For them, light did not consist of anything physical. Therefore, the author of Genesis could not have meant that when God said, let there be light and there was light... Genesis 1-3, that anything physical came into existence. Material creation is ruled out on the basis of reading day one with an ancient Near Eastern mindset. Moreover, it is interesting that God does not call the light, light, nor does he call the darkness, darkness. He calls the light, day, and the darkness, night. Verse 5. Why is this? Light and day are not synonyms, even in Hebrew. Professor John Walton argues that the, this, that the figure of speech known as metonymy is being employed here. Metonymy is a figure of speech that substitutes the effect for its cause, mentioning the cause instead of the effect. Light is substituted for day, and darkness is substituted for night. What God is referring to is the period of light and the period of darkness— i.e. daytime and nighttime. What this suggests is that what God creates is time. Time is what is created on day one, not time as Dr. Craig understands it. The ancients weren't thinking in terms of A theory and B theory. They had no concept of a space-time fabric either. For them, time was marked by the day and night cycle. This is further supported by what Genesis says in verse 4, the verse immediately preceding verse 5. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. If these were material objects Scripture was talking about, verse 4 would make no sense. Darkness and light cannot be joined together. They can't coexist. Since they can't be together, they cannot be separated. Now, if it's the period of light and the period of darkness that Scripture is talking about, i.e. time, then Genesis 1-4 makes a lot more sense. What God separates is the period of light and darkness, not physical light from physical darkness. From looking at Scripture alone, we can see a good basis for affirming that God created a function on day one, not anything material. And what was that function? Time. Day four, then, as I've said, should be seen as God installing the functionaries that carry out the function decreed on day one. Now, I want to make it clear here that by function, I do not mean scientific function. What I mean is an anthropologically oriented function. That is to say, function is related to how, thing, to how creative things serve humanity. In this podcast episode, Dr. Craig acknowledges this distinction between scientific function and anthro anthropologically oriented function, but he asks what exactly is added to the picture once the scientific functions are in place.
criticism is that Walton cannot say that these physical things can't exist apart from an orderly system. Because the minute you say that, then the functional creation view collapses into the traditional six-day creation, namely actually bringing these things uh, into being over the six days, because they can't exist without their functions. If that's true, then in specifying their functions, God brings them into existence. Um, and Dr. Craig also says in this in this podcast episode that I and other proponents of the functional interpretation have an enormous burden of proof to say that only function is being created, not material, with a function. And he says, why can't it be both? Why can't it be both and? Well, for one thing, again, if you insist that material is being created along with a function – you have a problem with light, a non-material thing in ancient Near Eastern thinking, being created on day one and day four. Once again, the ancients did not consider light to be a material thing. So if this is supposed to be about material origins, um, then God did not create anything on day one, and he did not create anything on day four. Days one and four are, God does not create anything. Weird. I thought this was supposed to be a creation account. Now, again, while we, 21st century modern Westerners, realize that they're gigantic balls of gas millions of miles and some even light years away, the ancients did not. They did not know that the sun was, that the moon was a giant rock orbiting the planet. These were immaterial things in the ancient mindset. So if Craig insists on saying that Genesis 1 is about material manufacturing of the cosmos, then he's got to say that God didn't create anything on days one and four. Which is, again, a bit odd for a material origins account. And, also, if you do insist on Genesis 1 being about material creation, you're forced to say that God created a solid dome sky on day two, since that's how ancient Near Easterners would have understood the firmament. And the vast majority of Old Testament and ancient Near Eastern scholars agree. Um, see, for example, the blog post on biologos.org called The Ancient Universe and the Cosmic Temple by J. Richard Middleton, posted on July 16th, 2016. Um, see the article on moreunseenrealm.com by, written by, it's called Genesis and Ancient Near Eastern Cosmology, written by Dr. Michael Heiser. Read the book, Scripture and Cosmology, Reading the Bible Between the Ancient World and Modern Science by Kyle Greenwood, uh, published by IVP Academics, September 3rd, 2015. And also, see John Walton's books, the, G uh, the Lost World of Genesis 1 and Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament, both of which are published by IVP Academics. That is my phone. Darn it. <laughs> um... And you, and you could also see this in the uh, NIV Faith Life Illustrated Study Bible. I mean, this is this is the the majority position on ancient Near Eastern cosmology that they understood this as a solid dome. And one of the ironic things, uh, it, it's ironic that after Craig addresses my responses to. His articles, he goes on to have an episode about the firmament in which he denies that the ancients would have understood 
the 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 sky as a as a solid dome. He d- he's he's very dismissive of the functional view because oh the the vast majority of scholars uh, re- reject it. They they think it's about material origins. Uh, you know most Old Testament scholars don't hold this view. It's, it's such a minority view. I mean he said that uh, more than once. But then he takes a view on the firmament that the vast majority of ancient Near Eastern scholars don't hold to. It's just, it's, it's kind of ironic. But, you know, uh, now, as I said in part two of my response to Dr. Craig, both in blog post form and in podcast form, day, day two is a problem. Now, if you accept the... Cons- the 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 near universal consensus not everyone agrees but it is the majority view that the 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 firmament is a solid dome holding back waters you either have to a affirm that the material creation of the sky is not the focus of the text but the function of the weather is god is setting up the weather system he's saying Here, here's the purpose of the firmament it's to bring rain to the earth and stuff, uh, and B, or you can be, you can sort, you can resort to concordist hermeneutics and say that the text doesn't mean how the ancients would have interpreted it. Now, I realize now that, that there's a third option, uh, that what I presented was a false dichotomy. It's actually a trichotomy, but that doesn't help Craig. It doesn't. If Craig wants to argue that the ancient Near Eastern mindset, that, they, that the Israelites would have viewed the sky exactly the same way that, uh, that we do, um, and, you know, in that case, one would not be committed to saying that God physically manufactured a solid dome. One would not have to resort to concordist hermeneutics. You could, you can still read the text the way an ancient Near Easterner would, but... How do we understand the sky? As it's not it's not physical, it's not material. So, Craig, as I said in the uh, part two of my of my blog post response and in my podcast response, he still has he still has to pick his poison. He still has to pick his poison. You can either say, "Hey, God physically manufactured a solid dome." Oh well. There goes biblical inerrancy, because we know there's no solid dome up there. The astronauts would have crashed into it if when they tried to go to the moon if there was. Or, or B, concordism. Uh, it doesn't mean what it what the ancients would have interpreted it to mean. Or three, uh, the ancients would have interpreted it as a non-solid entity. Okay, well in that case, God didn't create anything material on day two. If the ancients understood the sky as a non-material thing and God created the sky on day two... This is not material creation. So, expanding it to a trichotomy doesn't help Craig. He's there's st- all three of which are detrimental to his insistence that this is about material creation. So, hey, you know what? Craig wants to say, Doctor Craig wants to say that the the ancients wouldn't have understood the solid uh, the sky as a solid dome. Hey, I'll give him that. It only it only bolsters my point. It only makes my position stronger. So now we see that days one, two, nor day four have God making anything material in a material manufacturing process. So half of this material origins account doesn't have God producing anything material.
What the heck? Finally, uh, Craig has to face the fact that the creation account kicks off with material already being present, the sea. Now, whether God made the sea out of pre-existing stuff or whether he created the sea ex nihilo is neither here nor there to me. My point is that if this were a material origins account, shouldn't the author explain to us where the material sea came from? Why does he begin with material already present if an explanation of where all of the different things within the material universe came from was the point of the text? And also, it's interesting that the material that is present at the beginning of the text is material that is a common ancient Near Eastern symbol of chaos and non-order. If a symbol of chaos and non-order is how the passage kicks off, shouldn't that tip us off that perhaps subduing the chaos and the imposition of order is the focus of the text? And Evan here, I think, doesn't understand the point. He says, why can't these things exist in a material sense apart from an ordered creation? Isn't it possible for a house to exist in a material sense without it functioning as a home for a family? Well, of course that's right. But what I said was, Walton cannot respond to my critique by saying, well, these things can't exist without a function. Because if he does say that, which is what Evan seems to want to say, it, you can't say that these things cannot exist without a function, because then in specifying the function, you would bring them into existence. If we say X cannot exist in a material sense without also having a function at the same time, if we say that X cannot exist in a material sense without also having a function at the same time, then once it comes into being, in a material sense, it also comes into being in a functional sense simultaneously. And by contrast, if God functionally creates, then the material object comes into being as well. But it's important to remember how function is being used here. Both Walton and I would not say that the objects mentioned in Genesis 1, some of which weren't even objects in ancient Near Eastern thinking, as I've already said, couldn't exist in a material sense without having their functions. Function, as Craig goes on to acknowledge, is an anthropocentric function, or anthropologically oriented function. God decrees how things will function for humanity. Certainly, the sun, moon, and stars could exist long before they served to mark seasons, days, and years for humans. Certainly, trees could be producing vegetation before they serve as nourishment for humans, and so on. They exist in a material ontology, but they, they do not exist on a functional ontology. A house can exist for weeks in a material sense, but not exist as a home, functional sense. And it seems clear to me that if you make a house into a home, you aren't necessarily also bringing the wooden structure into being. You're just moving in to live in it. You start sleeping in the bed, cooking in the kitchen, watching TV in the living room, and so on. Uh, Craig seems to have a hard time maintaining the distinction between something existing in a material ontology, but not existing in a functional ontology. 
So, billions of years prior to the creation week, the sun, the moon, the stars, they were not marking time for humanity. That's an important thing to keep in mind here. When Walton and I speak of the sun functioning, we don't mean it in a, in a scientific sense. The sun doesn't function in ancient Near Eastern thinking just because it's producing light and heat. It functions when it functions for the benefit of someone, in this case, humans. This can be seen in other ancient Near Eastern texts. For example, the Egyptian papyrus Insinger says, quote, He created light and darkness in which is every creature. He created the earth, begetting millions, swallowing up them up and beginning again. He created day, month, and year through the commands of the Lord of creation. Of commands. He created summer and winter through the rising and setting of Sothis. He created food before those who are alive, the wonder of the fields. He created the constellation of those that are in the sky, so those on the earth should learn from them. He created sweet water in it, which all the lands desire. He created breath in the egg, though there is no access to it. He created birth in every womb with the semen from the semen which they receive. He created sinews and bones out of the same semen. He created going and coming in the whole earth, though through the trembling of the ground. He created sleep to end weariness, waking for looking after food. He created remedies to end illness, wine to end affliction. He created the dream to show the way to the dreamer in his blindness. He created life and death before him for the torment of the impious man. He created wealth for truthfulness, poverty for falsehood. He created work for the stupid man, work for the common man. He created the succession of generations so as to make them live. End quote. An anthropocentric function orientation is very clear from Egyptian papyrus Insinger. The, the Egyptian instruction of Merikari says, quote, Well tended is mankind, God's cattle. He made sky and earth for their sake. He made breath for their noses to live. They are his images who came from his body. He made for them plants and cattle, fowl and fish to feed them. When they weep, he hears, end quote. An anthropocentric function orientation is very clear from the Egyptian instruction of Merikari. Then I think you're landed in this very implausible interpretation of Genesis 1. So Evan says, I don't see what the issue is supposed to be. Um, if we are talking about purely functional creation, why think that if someone jumped into a time machine and traveled to the creation week, he'd see anything spectacular happening on the planet. That's exactly my point. On Walton's view, if you traveled back in time in your time machine and came out during the creation week, however long ago that was, you wouldn't see anything coming into existence. The dinosaurs, a man, the sun and the stars, they'd all be there um, just fine, um, be a, an ecosystem that was working, um, and nothing spectacular would be happening. Now, the difference between Evan and me is that he's willing to bite the bullet and say, yeah, that's plausible. That, that is what Genesis 1 means. And it seems to me that that is just an enormously implausible reading. I guess I just don't see what the problem here is supposed to be. 
if Genesis 1 were an account of material origins, an account of how the entire cosmos was physically manufactured, then yeah, you ought to see things coming into being in a physical sense if you time-traveled to the creation week. And I'm assuming here that the evolutionary view of, of origins is not true, that God didn't create via evolution. I mean, in that case, if you traveled back to when God was creating, you'd just see a bunch of monkeys and dinosaurs running around. You, But, uh, you know, if, you, if it's creation ex nihilo, uh, then if you traveled back in time to when God was creating, you would be sit- sitting near a lake, and then all of a sudden, poof, there'd be a, a bunch of ducks appear on a pond, and you'd be like, whoa! Uh or, or it's, and especially if this took place within a, a literal tw- uh, six 24-hour day week, then you would see all sorts of things popping into existence. But if Genesis 1 were an account of material origins, an account of how the entire cosmos was physically manufactured, I, I mean... Uh, uh, if Genesis 1 were an account of functional origins, rather, not about how the entire cosmos was physically manufactured, if God's merely specifying the functions of the seven days, why why, why would you expect to see anything out of the ordinary? I, I don't see that there is a bullet for me to bite. You don't see a restaurant materially come into being when it has its grand opening ceremony. You might see a ribbon-cutting ceremony and an announcement on the website and on social media that the restaurant is now open for business, but that's because restaurant grand opening ceremonies are done by physical people who are visible and on earth. If God is decreeing land, your fun- your job is to produce vegetation, fruit. Your job is to make food to feed my creatures, sun, moon, and stars. Your purpose is to shine light on the earth, to keep time. Uh, then why think that that would be discernible to the human senses? God does a lot of things in the heavenly realm that we're not aware of. Does Craig also think that a time traveler should have witnessed Satan falling to earth? Luke chapter 10 verse 18, confer Isaiah 14 12. Does he expect that a time traveler would be able to discern angels cheering as God laid the foundations of the earth? See, I, see Job chapter 38 verses 6 to 7. Uh, Would the doctor say, Clara, get back in the TARDIS. These noisy angels are getting on my nerves. This is absurd. I I really don't see why Craig sees this as a flaw in the interpretation. Now, finally, before I end, uh, Craig ends the podcast episode by noting, once again, how little support Walton's view has gained among his peers. Uh, Now, I I will say that this being a minority position uh, does bother me. That's why I've looked into a wide variety of criticisms on Walton's view. Now, something is true even if no one believes it, and something can be false even if everyone believes it. What ultimately matters is not how many heads nod in agreement to a theory, but whether or not the evidence for that theory is good. That said, uh, if the majority of experts say that X is wrong, then you need to take that very seriously and listen to what they have to say. This is why I've sur- this is why I've surveyed so many criticisms of Walton's view, and I've written blog posts responding to those criticisms, and I've done podcast episodes on them. I've looked at William Lane Craig's, Hugh Ross's, Thomas Purifoy Jr.'s, Dominic Stanton's, and several others, their critiques of John Walton's interpretation, and I haven't found any of them to even cast the slightest doubt on the theory, much less refute it. 
Now, I haven't looked at that many critiques of John Walton's view of Adam and Eve. I've only looked at Keaton Halley's, but I didn't find his critique of, uh, the, of his interpretation of Adam and Eve that impressive either. I'll continue to listen to criticisms of the view, but so far, I haven't found any that made me doubt it. I also think that William Lane Craig really underestimates the power of cultural filters. Um, so, in conclusion, I, I am glad that Dr. Craig interacted with my articles, uh, but his follow-up rebuttals weren't very good. So, I have no problem hooking my star, as Craig put it, to this view of Genesis 1. Thank you for the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Come back next time to hear what Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy has to say in response to Craig's response to my response to his critique of the Cosmic Temple Inauguration view of Genesis 1. And if you would, please go to patreon.com slash cerebralfaith and become a patron. Your your donations are really helpful. Uh, being on Patreon has opened doors to this ministry that would not have been possible otherwise. And the more patrons I get, the more I will be the the farther I will be able to take this ministry. And you will get goodies in return. You'll get early access to blog posts and podcast episodes. You'll get shout outs on the podcast like Jordan Apodafka, David Whitaker, uh, uh, David Parrish. Kevin Walker, Austin Long, and Jordan Hampton. And you will, if you're on the $20 tier, you'll get to chat with me over Skype once a month, and you will get audiobook versions of my books. You can't get these audiobook versions anywhere else except through Patreon. So you'll get some goodies in return, and you'll also help me. So... Go to patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I will see you next time. God bless.